The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. The word of the Lord. It's actually helpful for you to keep your Bibles open to that particular passage since I'm going to be referring to the various texts in it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever wondered what life on the new earth will be like? Have you ever wondered what it would be like in heaven, so to speak? Ever speculated? It isn't a problem to wonder, and it's not a problem to speculate, and I suspect that Many, if not all of us, have done it at one time or another in one way or another. The confessions of the church give us some direction in our thinking about what life on the new earth may be like as, we, as they consider the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We said it a few moments ago when we recited Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There we confess that one of the benefits of the resurrection, one of, one of the benefits of Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. That is to say, in Jesus' resurrection, we receive a pledge from him, a pledge along the line of Philippians 3.21, that he will transform, trans- our lonely bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Never thought about that. In spite of the fact that we end up at the funeral and that we end up at grave sites, yet the grave site, the funeral, does not have the final last word, says the Bible because it would appear that you and I are going to receive resurrected, glorified bodies. These bodies renewed, and we're going to live forever with the Lord, body and soul, upon the new earth. 
We confessed as much in Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism in response to the question, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? How does this encourage you? How does this strengthen you? And remember the answer? Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Some have called that a really weird gospel. Strange gospel in the book of Acts. But all of this says, in other words, that we will not be raised as ghosts or as angels or some floating spirit inhabiting the clouds. But it would appear that we're going to be glorified flesh and blood people who will inhabit a renewed physical earth. Based upon Scripture, I think we can safely say that heaven is not about floating in the clouds with halos and harps, snacking on Philadelphia cream cheese, nor is heaven about looking over the edge of a cloud at what's going on, on, earth, on here on earth and then going here to speak with a loved one once in a while, like it's so often portrayed in the comics, for example. Instead, heaven is all about serving the Lord and living in His glorious presence for all eternity in a physically renewed reality. And so as we think about eternity and the renewed earth, we ought to think in terms of this world renewed and cleansed. You can make a pretty good case from Scripture that God is not going to annihilate everything that exists in space right now, including this planet, and start all over again. After all, remember when He created and He made it all in the first place, He said, this is excellent. It is excellent. And He made it perfect. So it's this world which will be made new. We will be resurrected not to live on some star out in space or some other planet, as some like the Mormons tend to think will happen to us, but we're going to live on this earth, renewed in the presence of the Lord and amidst the wonders and the spectacle of His creation. And so we can anticipate that there will be a certain amount of continuity from this life to the life hereafter. And all of this is guaranteed because of the fact that Jesus did not remain dead, but because the Father raised him from the dead. But what will it be like? What's going to be different? Will we know what is happening on earth today while we're waiting for the Lord to make all things new? Will we recognize other people on the new earth? Will we eat? I sure hope so, because that's part of our physical reality now, and boy, there sure is a lot of joy in good eating. Will we need keys? Oh, I hope not. They're such a pain to have, and I always lose them here anyway. 
What are we going to be doing for all eternity? Playing harps? I suspect not. I don't know how to play one even now. What will it be like in the presence of God? The questions go on and on. Of course, in all of this, we have to be careful because we're dealing with things that are of God, things that are very difficult for us to understand in our limited temporal perspective. And yet the Bible does give us certain clues concerning the new earth and concerning life eternal. And while we know that in many ways we will live for all eternity in, a re- in reality that will be recognizable in the light of what we have here and now, yet at the same time we also know there's going to be changes. Things are going to be different. We know, of course, there will be no more dying. The funeral industry is over. No more cemeteries. No more sighing. No more tears. No more, praise the Lord, wars. No more rumors of wars. No more fear. No more pain. No more discord. No more jealousy. No more cancer. No more unwanted children or adults. No more homelessness or refugees or injustice. And so on. And then one of the other things that will be different in heaven is what we find Jesus telling the Sadducees in Mark 12, verse 25, namely that there will be no marriage in the life to come. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. In other words, the basic prototype covenant relationship that we have been talking about, namely marriage, is going to change. Now, that ought not to come as a surprise to us because when a couple gets married, they exchange vows that usually include words like, until death do us part or as long as we both shall live. These words declare that we understand our marriage is a permanent institution, and yet all marriages end in spite of our teachings about them as being permanent. Some marriages end in brokenness and divorce. That's always painful and that's terrible. But the fact of the matter is that all marriages on earth end. Some sooner than others, but all marriages end when a partner dies. And so in some ways, when a partner dies, the surviving spouse has a double loss experiences a double death, the loss or death of their partner and the loss or death of their marriage. That's also what increases some people's pain and grief at the time of death. Perhaps the marriage was so wonderful, the relationship was so wonderful that it was hard not only to have the person die, but it's also very, very tough to have the relationship end. And of course, there are those who try to deny the death of the marriage as long as possible. And so even after a death has taken place, they will live as if they're still married. And some of that is understandable because a good marriage has aspects that transcend death. Vivid memories can keep a relationship alive to to some degree. But somewhere along the line, the reality of death must be faced and it must be 
understood. And so it is when death robs a marriage partner, it also robs the marriage. This is also, of course, precisely why the church has never had any difficulty whatsoever with the fact that widows and widowers remarry. After all, the first marriage is dead. They're now free to get involved with someone else. And getting remarried is not being unfaithful to the first spouse in such a situation. Now, for some, this may be hard to grasp or hard to come to terms with, and they may not even like to hear it said, perhaps because they found it not only difficult to be without their partner, but perhaps because they haven't let their marriage die, even though it's dead. And they may also be comforting themselves with the fact that when they die, they'll be joining their partner in an everlasting marriage relationship. And others wonder if they would, not, if they would even want to see their earthly partners again. There are those who can't wait to see their earthly partners again, but there are those. They don't want to see their earthly partner again. Because life with that partner here wasn't all that good. And the idea of having to spend eternity with that particular person isn't rather unnerving, to say the least. And so with all due respect and care, let me suggest that we need to be really careful about comforting ourselves with the thoughts that once we enter our eternal rest, we will be able to carry on our earthly relationships. We need to be careful with that. I hear it all the time, but we need to be careful with that. Nonetheless, the questions remain. Will we recognize each other in heaven? Will we be able to catch up on the latest news about our children and grandchildren? When it really comes down to us, you know, we must confess with the writer of 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see is a poor reflection in a mirror. Now we only know so much and no more. But to try to give something of an answer to the question, we can go to the teachings of Scripture which may give us a clue. And so we went to Mark 12 this morning, and in Mark 12 we read that one day a group of Sadducees came to Jesus with a question. The Sadducees was the priestly party among the Jewish religious leadership, and it was from the Sadducees that the high priest was selected. And while the Jewish religious leadership was agreed that Jesus should be destroyed, there was really no other agreement or love between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two largest opposing parties. The Sadducees were known to have rejected the doctrines of the soul and the doctrines of afterlife. They rejected any teachings concerning the resurrection or angels or demons for that matter. There was simply no such thing as a spirit world for them. What you see is all there is, they said. And on this particular occasion, when they came to Jesus, they tried to draw, draw, draw Jesus into the controversy and into their disagreements with the Pharisees. And their purpose was to make fun of Jesus' belief in the afterlife. How could such a popular rabbi, if he was a rabbi, really believe in something so strange as the afterlife? 
As far as they were concerned, that didn't make any sense at all. Of course, they figured that if they could get Jesus, and then they would also have some ammunition against the Pharisees. And so they tried to show Jesus and those who followed Jesus that the thinking of this popular rabbi was flawed and illogical. And they figured that if they could challenge him, then perhaps they could turn people against Jesus. <laughs> but what happened was the, exactly the opposite because the people were incredibly impressed with the answers that Jesus gave to the challenges. The Sadducees approached Jesus with a question concerning marriage in heaven. In their question, they quoted from Deuteronomy and the writings of Moses, which they themselves held in higher esteem than any other part of the Old Testament. And in the passage from Deuteronomy 25, we read what is known as the law of Leverite marriage. This may sound really strange to us, but this is how it went. According to this law, if a wife loses her husband before any male child has been born, then the brother of that husband, or else the nearest of kin, must marry the widow, so that the firstborn child out of that line, out of that marriage, may be counted as the child of the deceased, and the latter's line may not die out. The whole idea, of course, was indeed was to make sure that a person's line or name did not disappear from among the people of Israel and the very people from whom the Messiah was to come. <clears throat> and since all family lines were through the men, it was important that the men have a male heir. Issues of land inheritance and so forth all played a role in Leverite laws. And if we think of the story of Ruth and Boaz, then we see the Leverite marriage law at work. There was no record of how this law was adhered to in Jesus' day, and I suspect that the law wouldn't go over terribly well today. But don't worry about it. It doesn't need to be fulfilled today. After all, Jesus has come and he's fulfilled the Old Testament laws. But now the Sadducees used this law to show how thoroughly absurd they considered belief in the resurrection to be. And they probably simply made up a story that they placed before Jesus for a response. And the story is as follows. Very simple. Remember, seven brothers. The first one married, and he died without leaving any children. All right, according to the Leverite law, what happened next? The second one married the widow, and he was supposed to produce a male son, but that didn't work either because he died and left no child. And the same thing happened with number three. It's like all these brothers stand in line to marry this woman. In fact, none of the seven left any of any children at all. And last of all, as is prone to happen, the woman died too. All right. Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? After all, she was married to seven men. They could have left it, of course, at two brothers, but they didn't. Their going to seven brothers was done purposely, not only to make the matter more absurd, 
to make their joke all the greater, or so they thought. And you could just, you could just see them, you know, standing in a little circle. Boy, we got this guy. We're really smart. <coughs> Seven brothers. I wonder how he's going to answer this one. But man, did they set themselves up for a fall. Jesus demolished their question and their assumptions in his answer. And Jesus began, as you see in this passage, by asking the Sadducees why they would ask such a strange and speculative question. Had they known the Scriptures well enough, which they claimed they did, they would have known that the Leverite marriage law, as given in Deuteronomy 25, is only applicable to this life. Nowhere does the Bible, in the context of this particular law, talk about the life to come. They should have known that. They knew Old Testament. And besides, they had recognized something of the power of, had they recognized something of the power of God, that they would have recognized and understood that the Lord would be able to raise the dead in such a way that these sorts of issues and questions would not be relevant. And then Jesus proceeded in verse 25 to declare that indeed these issues are irrelevant because when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be given, they'll be like the angels in heaven. The glorious resurrection body, which will be granted to those who believe, is going to be immortal. Death cannot touch it anymore since Christ overcame death and raised us to life. Now new rules, new regulations apply. New relationships apply. And it would appear that marriage as we know it is going to be a thing of the past. Luke records this story as well and puts it this way. In Luke 20, verse 35 and 36, In the resurrection from the dead they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will no longer die, for they're like the angels. In this sense we resemble the angels, Jesus said. We're not going to become angels, we're humans. But we will resemble them in the sense that like they do not marry, so we will not marry. And Jesus rubs in a reference to the angels spoken of even in the first five books of the Bible which the Sadducees held in such high esteem. Remember, this is a whole battle between the Sadducees and Jesus and the Pharisees and all the references and so forth would mean a whole lot to them because it came out of their context. Had the Sadducees known the Scriptures and recognized the power of God, they would not be asking the question they did of Jesus but continuing with the question, anyway, the Sadducees had the tables turned on them. They made it rather clear to all around them that they really had no idea what they're talking about and that their knowledge of the Scriptures really wasn't, great, wasn't as great as they said it was. And so it must have been an incredibly embarrassing moment for them, perhaps one that made them hate Jesus all the more. And since, as taught in 1 Corinthians 15, the Scriptures and the Christian faith stands and falls with the truth of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus had one final challenge to the Sadducees who denied it all. 
In verse 26 and following, Jesus made a reference to Moses and the burning bush where God addressed Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Sadducees would have instantly noticed the passage that Jesus was quoting. Well, said Jesus, God is not the God of a bunch of dead people, but he is the God of the living. His promises and care go on past the deathbed to the day of the glorious resurrection from the dead. So, Sadducees, Sadducees, said Jesus, you are badly mistaken. Or in denying the resurrection, you're deceiving yourselves. You blunder badly, said Jesus. And of course people are going to blunder when they depart from the Scriptures. When you depart from the Word of God, you're bound to blunder and to badly be badly mistaken and to wander. For there is indeed such a thing as the resurrection of the body, and there is a life hereafter. There is eternal life. And in his answer to the Sadducees, Jesus made it quite clear that life after the resurrection exceeds our expectations. While there is some degree of continuity from this life, there are also going to be changes. And eternity is more wonderful than we think. Paul put it this way. We heard it at the very beginning of the service in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But it's obvious, and it would appear, that marriage is not to be part of the new life. The husband-wife relationship that we have here will not go on into all eternity that's because a far more important relationship will outshine all other relationships. And that's that love bond between Jesus and the church. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. As one writer put it, quote, we will not feel like spying around to see if pa or ma is here or not. We shall all live to him. On that new earth, in that new setting, we will be one as children of the King. In heaven, we shall be wonderfully close to one another as the family of God. And there we will recognize each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not as husband and wife, necessarily. On the new earth, we are going to experience a love even greater and stronger and more wonderful than any of the best relationships here on earth. The best is yet to come as we fellowship with the Lamb who has been slain for your and for my sake. The best is yet to come as we sit at the wedding feast of the bridegroom Jesus and the bride the church. And then all of us are going to be happier than we have ever been. And as the songwriter put it, and perfect love and friendship shall reign to all eternity. I almost hate to say it, but there will be no marriage in heaven that is as we know it now. 
We are married here and we make our vows until death do us part. And in some ways that's sad. We don't want it to be that way. But the reality is on the new earth there's going to be a whole new set of relationships which will surpass anything we know now. And it was that relationship that God put in place with you and with me and with the church through the blood of Christ. And it's all by grace and by grace alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're not sure we like what we just heard. Because some of us are looking forward to this relationship carrying on in heaven. We really don't want things to be different because we like what's happening here. And yet, Lord, you place before us such an incredible picture of how things will be. And really what we experience here is just but a, a small foretaste of what is to come. How incredible your covenant relationship with the church, with the body of believers, and how incredible will be that marriage feast of Jesus and the church. Help us, Lord, to look forward to that. And help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight and honoring in your sight. And help us, Lord, in our relationships that they may indeed give us a foretaste of what is to come. We praise you for your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.